Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. This is Robert along with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. And joining us to start the show is longtime friend of the show and Astros minor league guru, Jimmy Price. Go check out his work on AstrosFuture.com or his Astros Future podcast. Great to have both you and Astros baseball officially back, Jimmy. Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, it's nice to have a couple spring training games in. I'm ready to, to see some more guys in action. So, Jimmy, on Monday, Forrest Whitley gives up a couple of runs through 25 of his 34 pitches for strikes in his first spring training appearance against, I guess, a watered-down Miami Marlins lineup. But that, that leads me into the question all Astros fans are wondering, Jimmy, if Lance McCullers is out for a few months, you know, we know Forrest Whitley's one of the guys that we've talked about that could be a little bit of pitching depth, but who are some of the starting pitchers from our farm system who you think can help out or maybe even make the roster as a long reliever? Uh, I, mean, I think Brandon Belak has got to be one of the guys. He's kind of um, kind of quietly put up some good numbers in the majors when he's had the opportunity to have a spot starter and long relief. Uh, it'd be great if, if Forrest Whitley could stay healthy and he could uh, kind of do what we expect him to do. But at this point, you know, I mean, it was nice to see him be out there today and he was healthy and he was, the pitches were working. I know he gave up some hits and runs. At this point, it's his health early in the spring. Hopefully he'll get going. But, yeah, Brandon Belag seems to be one of the, the top favorites. Another guy they added to the roster in the uh, offseason to the 40-man roster, J.P. France, uh, had some really good strikeout numbers. They ended up converting him in, into more of a reliever later in the season. Uh, but he's had some starting experience, so he could he could maybe be one of those guys that picks up a spot start, maybe pitches in long relief as well. Jimmy, I'm curious. I, I kind of want to piggyback on Robert's question, you know, in terms of the starting pitching depth. You mentioned J.P. France, obviously Forrest Whitley, Brandon Belak. It, it just seems like over the years, guys like Christian Javier, Luis Garcia, Jose Urquidy, uh, just to name a few, these guys kind of come out of nowhere and the Astros have done such a great job of developing starting pitching, just pitching in general during this run, this dynasty that they're on uh, over the course of the last six years. Are there any other kind of fringe guys that you have maybe uh, paid attention to that have caught your eye that they're, they're not amongst the top 20 prospects in this system, but maybe we should kind of side eye them a little bit? In terms of guys that I think would contribute, uh, you know, right away, I'm, I'm a lot of the, I think the unknown arms are going to be a little bit lower in the system. And there's quite a bit of them actually that are in that, that single A, maybe pushing into the high A range that are probably in that back 20 to 30 to, to 40 range in the system. Um, but if we're looking at a guy that's maybe a little uh, underknown by most fans that could probably have an, an impact this year, uh, Missy Altamirez, he, he pitched all the way up to AAA last year, has some issues with command, but he's a guy that runs it up to like 97, 98 pretty, uh, pretty regularly. Um, and maybe a guy that can make a step forward like a, a Luis Garcia or a Christian Javier when we saw them. Uh, maybe not as explosive, but still extremely young. I think he's like 22, 23 years old. He'll probably be in AAA this year. Looking, like I said, a little further down the system, there is some, some definitely some unknown guys that could follow that, that Javier kind of role. Uh, Miguel Ulola is a, a high potential prospect. Edison Bautista is another one. Really good breaking ball. The Astros just seem to do well of finding, you know, these unheralded pitching prospects and turning them into to, uh, legitimate prospects and, and obviously MLB contributors. Hey, uh, I want to ask you about this catching situation because that's one of the real soap operas in camp, we know. And before I do that, let's remind everybody the best way to support us is subscribe and comment on YouTube. You can listen on the run by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. But Jimmy, you followed the minor league careers of Corey Lee and Jonner Diaz for the last few years. Who are you betting on to make the roster 
And who do you bet on long term between, you know, kind of who's going to be the long term answer between those two guys, you think? Man, that that's a really good one. Um, I think they both bring something different to the table. I think if you're looking for more of the defensive option, Corey Lee might be your might be your bet there. But I, I really believe in Yonder Diaz's bat. I think he's going to be able to be a big league contributor. You know, he doesn't strike out. He has power to all fields. I mean, he's doing it at such a young age. You know, it's crazy. The Astros traded for him uh, back in the 21 season at Miles Straw deal. And at the time, he was in single A. And now, uh, not even a year and a half later, we're talking about him maybe making the opening day roster. So pretty crazy. So if I was, I guess if I was a bet man, I'd like to bet on his bat. I think he's going to be able to contribute either at catcher, first base, DH, DH, wherever they put him. I think he even got some reps in the outfield. But I do think Corey Lee seems like the better option maybe to, to be an immediate backup because, you know, it seems like, with your backup catcher, you want somebody that's going to be good defensively that can maybe give uh, Maldonado some days off. So looking at the defensive side, I'd, I'd say Corey Lee. But in terms of the bat, I think uh, I think Yonder Diaz is going to be special at the big blue level. Corey Man, kind of struggled a little bit. Um, I just thought he didn't look that great last year when he had an opportunity defensively. Do you feel like he's just kind of nervous getting his start there? Or was there stuff that we just didn't see that first uh, few weeks that he got a chance? Yeah, I think it's hard to judge a guy off of, off of a few weeks in the majors. I mean, we, see, we we do it at the plate all the time. You know, we give guys breaks at the plate. I think defensively is the same way. Uh, but just looking at, you know, what what they can contribute defensively. And I don't want to take anything away from Yonder Diaz. I think he can still improve. Like I said, he was just in single A a year and a half ago. But I think Corey Lee has a chance to, to be a the better defender at the major league level. Uh, but both of the guys, you know, the neither one of them ranking like the top 100 prospects, fan graphs, MLB. But I think both of them could honestly together could make a, a nice catching you know tandem in the future i was just gonna say man i was glad to hear your opinion your take on yonder diaz i really really like him and uh, my hopes are pretty high for him as well for a lot of the same reasons obviously the defense you never know but i mean that's what spring training is for and that's the benefit of having a guy like uh, maldonado you know as your starter as you know one of your captains uh, and leaders on the team so to speak you know i'm kind of curious on your take, Jimmy, about one of the more underrated, you know, things that maybe we're not, people aren't talking about with this Astros ball club. And it kind of ties into the catching position for me because I get caught up too, and I want to talk about the the competition between Corey Lee and Yonder Diaz, things like that. But how important do you think it is to have another veteran catcher on this roster? Do you feel like that's something that you know, Dana Brown, their new GM, might explore during the course of the season if, in fact, you know, Martin Maldonado continues his struggles. You know, maybe he doesn't stay healthy. How do you see that position behind him? Yeah, I mean, it seemed like last year the Astros were, were content rolling with Maldonado despite uh, his lack of offensive production. I know they went and got Christian Vasquez at the uh, at the deadline, and then we got to see him play a little bit, but they really went back to Maldi pretty much every time in the playoffs, and and that was kind of their kind of their rock, and it was kind of seemed like they, they realized if the top seven or eight was hitting that you could do with uh, Maldonado not doing a ton at the bottom of the lineup. In terms of adding another veteran catcher, I I, I think it's a this is the, the perfect opportunity to give a guy like Corey Lee a shot or, or Uriana Diaz even at the backup option. You know, he can catch a couple times, uh, you know, a few times a month, give Maldonado some some days off, maybe provide some something, uh, something special with the bat. But he's also got some chemistry with some of these guys. A lot, you know, they've been through the system together. He's obviously been in the system since 2019. Uh, when he was a first round draft pick, but I kind of feel like rather than go out and sign the, the veteran catcher, you're never going to know what you have until you can kind of let these guys get an opportunity. And this seems like a good opportunity to, to let them get an extended stay at the major league level, getting some backup reps, getting some pinch hits, um, and then get some spot starts whenever you can get a chance. Jimmy, I thought maybe Pedro Leon could push for an outfield spot, but the injuries killed his chance. So without Leon, 
which surprise outfield candidate maybe could emerge if Jake Myers doesn't step it up in camp. It, it feels like I'm cheating saying this after uh, the last two games, but Justin Dearden was a guy that I kind of had pegged, you know, going into camp um, just because, you know, the, what he did last year at the the AA, AAA level, you know, undrafted free agent following that COVID draft probably would have been selected in the top 10 rounds if it wasn't for a five round draft, but uh, just a really good left-handed bat. I mean, you see the power to all fields. You saw the home run to, to uh, left center. You saw him pull one today, really good hitter. Doesn't strike out a ton. He draws walks, uh, kind of sneaky good athlete. I think he can handle center field. So, like I said, I feel like I'm cheating given that one based on the last last couple of games. He's three for three so far in, in spring training. But he seems like one of the guys that if, if there is an injury or something and we need somebody to step up, somebody added to the 40-man roster, he would be there. One other guy, Corey Jolks, he's, uh, we saw him play today, play a little bit of third base, a little bit of outfield, has some pop, University of Houston, collegiate-level player. Um, but he's another guy I think could get a chance maybe if Jake Myers doesn't get that role. It seems like the Astros are still uh, maybe – maybe content with that Myers-McCormick battle going on right now. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how that plays out this spring, but I do think they have a couple decent options uh, at the AAA level if needed. Is Medjevic kind of the guy then as far as uh, making the roster, especially because he's got that first base uh, ability to you know play defense over there? Yeah, that that's an interesting one. I, I don't think, you know, I think he's more of a, uh, it's weird. He played second base in college. He's a big guy, but I think he's more of like a first base DH guy. I'm not sure if you're going to want to play him in the outfield. So that may lead them to, to favor a guy like Jake Myers, especially with, uh, you know, we've been hearing rumors about it, it feels like for a couple of years of Michael Brantley getting some reps at first base. Um, and then if you do end up, you know, carrying a guy like Yiner Diaz, he can he can uh, have first base as well. So I think Medjevic has a, a nice bat that you'd like to have off the bench, a guy that can kind of provide some pop real quick. I just don't know if his uh, his versatility is going to be enough to, to carry him in a bench role uh, for the majority of the season. All right, Jimmy, uh, a lot of people are talking about the pitch clock. I mean, we barely have a handful of games to kind of uh, get an idea of what that's going to mean for hitters at the plate, never mind pitchers on the mound. But I kind of found it interesting, Kyle Tucker's take on the pitch clock and him having just, you know, eight seconds uh, to kind of get set. You know, it's like, hey, you know, there's not enough time to process what just happened, think mm -hmm. about what's coming and I started thinking about, like, the give and take. He's already kind of discussing the change there. And never mind the shift, right, which they've outlawed and how that could, you know, potentially benefit him, a Deadpool hitter, mm -hmm. that kind of a guy. And then I started thinking about the World Baseball Classic. Well, the World Baseball Classic, you know, they're going to be playing these pool games starting March 8th, and that's going to, you know, take away, you know, a good portion of spring. Like, how much of an opportunity do these guys actually have to get settled in, get used to these new rules? And I was thinking about Tucker and Altuve and Luis Garcia. All these guys are playing in the World Baseball Classic, you know, some important Astros. How do you see this whole thing playing out? And what did you make of Tucker's comments specifically? I, I think some of the younger guys have seen it a little bit. Obviously, guys like Altuve have never never seen the pitch clock. Uh, it's been in the, the minors around a little bit. I think a lot of the guys in the minors just got used to it. It's kind of one of those things that you have to – it's part of the game, and uh, it speeds the game up, and they're going to have to kind of get used to it. I do think it definitely favors the pitchers, the guys that like to work fast, because like you said, you know, the hitter has only a few seconds to really process what happened take a deep breath, get right back in the box. Uh, actually, when I was in Fayetteville last year, they had Jeff Bagwell on the broadcast, and he was talking about the same thing, how it's a big – it really favors the pitchers because the hitters – I mean, especially in a, a late-game situation, you know, you really want to slow your heart rate, take a couple deep breaths, and you really don't have the time to do that because you're staring at that clock out there that's, you know, counting down your, your seconds. So I'm interested to see how it's going to play out. You make a, a, a great point that, like, this spring is not – is a weird spring to introduce new rules given the fact that we do have the World Baseball Classic 
ultimately, I think the guys will be okay. Hopefully nothing comes down to where like it's a game changing thing. You know, if it's a ball or a strike here and there, but I, I do worry about a guy like Altuve. He, he does take his time. You know, he steps out, he does his thing. He kind of yeah. messes with the dirt and stuff. Kyle Tucker, he was kind of a quick step out, get a little dirt on his hand, get right back in the uh, right back in the box, you know. But I mean, Altuve's been in the the major since 2011, and, and now you're throwing a uh, another thing at him. But ultimately, they'll have to get used to it. It's part of the game, and th- whatever challenges they're going through, you know, the other team's going to be going through as well. So hopefully, hopefully, they'll be all right with it. Yeah, you know, and I just kind of Altuve's not exactly Nomar Garcia Para, you know, where he's tweaking his gloves like mm-hmm. 35 times, but. To me, he's going to be a little bit more interesting to kind of watch in the adjustment than Kyle Tucker, you know, because what you said about Tucker is absolutely right. It's just it seemed like it was more the mental aspect for Tucker Mm -hmm. that those extra few seconds, ball players are trained. I mean, everything is habitual and they they know that, you know what it need. I need 20 seconds to kind of process everything and, and and think about what's coming. But uh, it's going to be an interesting, interesting follow. Ultimately. I'm kind of with you. They're ball players, and you know what ball players do? They figure stuff out. They're ball players. And Altuve, mm-hmm. let's remember that Altuve of every guy on the Astros roster, he's a guy that just see ball, hit ball. We talked about <laughs> yeah. it during the cheating scandal that he didn't want to know a lot. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to process a bunch of stuff. He's the guy that's wee wheeling Keeler. You know where's the ball? You know where's the hole? I'm going to go find where the hole is, and I'm going to hit the ball there. Or I'm going to see the pitch that I want to hit. So, like, Altuve is the last guy, frankly, for me, that I would be worried about as an Astro fan. Kyle Tucker has got all this stuff. And, you know, I'm just going to say this. I saw a lot of whining from Twitter when this stuff rolls out this weekend and everybody's upset. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't think fast enough. You know, you can't think fast enough to watch a baseball game. You need that time for guys to be. You want to see guys scratching their balls and putting dirt on the bat, and walking around the mound. I miss all of that fun stuff in baseball. Just, you know, find some YouTube videos of guys doing that and just watch it on a loop for 20 minutes after the game if, if that's the stuff that you're missing. It just it blows me away that we've spent the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years of baseball saying the game's too darn long, and then you hear all these people that I'm like, you guys aren't watching three hours and 30 minutes. The ratings have gone down like a, you know, they're going straight down into the ground like a – come down like a plane that's about to crash and and everybody's like i miss games that are three hours and 30 minutes long and and you talk about adjustments sean and and jimmy i'm gonna just say this for a second i think what's gonna happen is at some point the baseball is gonna say okay we're gonna give you a couple of extra seconds and you know what jimmy you know what's gonna happen when they give them a couple extra they're gonna say oh my god that seems like so much longer of a time (laughs) and that mental adjusting it reminds me of the quarterback that you know, comes from college and he goes into the pros and it's like, everything's coming at him so fast. And then after a while you figure it out. And I think that's, what's going to happen. Maybe they're going to say, Oh, it's a little bit too quick. We'll give you like two extra seconds and that two extra seconds, all of a sudden that's not going to be such a big deal. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, but you know, I I, want to hear your take on that, Jimmy, but I I did want to mention too, you just reminded me of it, Robert, that uh, I think they're allowing one thirty second, you know, timeout of sorts per plate appearance. So it's, you know, going to come, down to like a little bit of strategy on the hitter like whenever they feel like they emotionally or mentally need that for themselves yeah I think if if you know I watch a lot of minor league baseball obviously and you go out to a game in Sugarland, and to me you don't even notice it the pitch clock's back there the umpire's resetting it you know you sit in the press box the guy's resetting it but it, you don't really notice it the game's just the game's just going and I think the guys that know it 
Uh, rarely do I even remember a, a, an automatic ball or strike being called. And if so, it was never something that really affected the game. Uh, so I, I think you're right. You know, the adjustments will be made. They'll eventually get used to it. That what feels like 10 seconds is quick now, like, like Robert said, will end up being a lot, uh, feel like a, an eternity when they actually get used to it. But yeah, I think it's good. I think that I actually really like the idea of the pickoffs. You know, that's, that's another thing in, that I think is uh, kind of intriguing, right? Cause after I, I'd have to get the exact count, right. But I think it's after two, like your yes. third one. Uh, if you don't successfully pick the guy off, you automatically get second. Yeah. And uh, heck, if anything, that feels like more of a drag than sometimes the, the uh, the seconds in between the pitcher just seeing the guy pick off you know six seven eight times in at bat but uh, but no I think they'll make the adjustments I don't know if either one of y'all have ever you know gone down to Sugarland last couple of years and watched the games I, to me you don't even notice it it's back there but you, you don't pay attention to it yeah in person you pro you're probably right um, but that Braves situation the other day with, mm -hmm. with that end of the ball game yeah my only problem is the viewer at home on TV the view that everybody saw probably on social. I'm looking in every corner, like, where's the pitch clock? Why is this? What, what's the problem here? You know, and it took a couple of seconds before you realize, and it's like, oh, yeah. And I just think, you know, the broadcast, Major League Baseball, they've got to figure out a very easy way. Do something like you do in the NBA with a shot clock where it's kind right. of built into the scoreboard or the NFL, the play clock, that whole <laughs> bit. I mean, it's a very simple fix. And I would assume if it's not done by the end of this week that somebody's doing something wrong, Major League Baseball or these broadcasts. But I agree with you. I just I didn't like it from a viewership standpoint. And you got to take these early days in spring training to work those kinks out. Yeah. yeah and one I, of the things they can do with the view, Jimmy, is just – if you put the clock in, all of a sudden fans can start, you know, it gets in a close game. We're in the postseason. Fans start going, you know, as the pitcher's on the mound and your your team's up at the plate. Five, four, three, <laughs> two. Yeah. yeah, no, and and I always wonder, too, like as a hitter, because the pitcher, he's not really looking right at it. But the hitter, it's it's uh, most of the times it's in, you know, the, the outfield where you can kind of look at it. And when it's getting down at that three, two, one, you're almost like anticipating the pitch being thrown. So I was wondering how that was going to mess with them. But I, and I was actually just wondering like the game, the way the game ended, do they look at maybe, maybe taking the rule out in the ninth inning when, when, you know, people need that extra time to process or something, or do they extend it in the ninth inning? That'll be interesting to see how they play that. Cause hopefully we don't have a major league baseball game, uh, actual regular season game or postseason for that matter. And on, an automatic ball or automatic strike or something like that. And, and to those people that were upset about that idea, the people that were upset about that idea, I just think, okay, are you upset if, you know, the clock runs out on somebody in the NBA at the end of the game, because you didn't, you know, put up a shot quick enough. Are you upset that somebody didn't snap the ball quick enough on, on, with it, with the uh, clock in the NFL when they're, you know, it's late in the game. I mean, this happens in all the sports, you, you know, players have to adjust. It's there's yeah. a clock now. Now it does, but I mean, I, I don't know. Think back to the first time you probably weren't around, like <laughs> any of us were. Like when the, when the NBA first instituted the shot clock. I mean, the first guy that failed to get a shot up, you know, within the shot <laughs> clock was probably like, what, what, what? Are you kidding me? You know, like who knows what that would have meant or what that didn't mean at that point in time of a game or whatever. Like who knows? I mean, baseball's a little bit different. You know, it's uh, very. <laughs> it's very old school you know this, yeah, well, Robert and that's what I was going to say I think a lot of people are hooked on the tradition of and, and you always hear this you know in basketball there's there's a clock the clock will run out and in football the clock will run out in baseball there's no clock you know you could you could be behind you know 20 to 1 in the ninth inning and the game's not over because the time will never end and yeah. not that this will stop the time it, it's just a, it's just a pitch clock but I think people just start seeing those clocks come in and 
and a lot of the traditionalists are kind of like, oh, this is messing the game up. But you're going to get exposed to it now. But for anyone that's watched minor league baseball, to me, it's it's just part of it, and uh, it, it's not something you even really think about. And I think once the pitchers start getting used to it too, they'll start working faster. And clearly, it's made the games go by pretty quick. I mean, I think it's I think the longest spring training game of the three so far is like two hours and nineteen minutes or something like that. It's uh, it's been going by pretty quick. Yeah, and if you're an old school fan, like I keep saying, if you're an old school fan, 30 or 40 years ago, this is how long mm-hmm. the games would last, guys. Just a heads up on that. Go watch <laughs> a game from 30 or 40 years ago. We'll go watch a game from 50 years ago. There's yeah. networks. There's YouTube videos. Uh, it's out there. Hey, Jimmy, uh, if anybody isn't subscribed to the Astros Future Podcast, you know I'm going to remind them, go listen to Jimmy and Kenny Van Doren's interviews with great interview with Spencer Aaron Getty this past week, Colin Price, J.P. Frank. Uh, you've got Justin Durden and some of the top prospects all these last couple of months up on your feed and anything else you want to plug with Astros future. Yeah, we're actually going to have a uh, Will Wagner on the podcast. So Billy Wagner's son, which I know everyone refers to, you know, Billy Wagner's son, Billy Wagner's son, just like with <laughs> JC Cray. I kind of feel bad for him sometimes. So we'll probably try to avoid some of that. I talked to him last year in Corpus Christi and I had to include some of that of his time, you know, what he remembered from, from his dad being in the major leagues and that advice he gave him. But yeah, we're gonna have him on the podcast. Uh, probably on Wednesday. So we'll probably be posting it Thursday, but yeah, right now we're just uh, me and Kenny are just looking at the guys in spring training. We'll be giving weekly updates on the prospects and that's pretty much it. Hey man, I always appreciate having you. Thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. Thanks Jimmy. Great stuff, Sean. Yeah. Always good to talk some ball. And uh, you know, that was my first time ever talking with Jimmy and uh, I would love to have him on more uh, this spring training and even the regular season. Uh, It, love talking ball with you, man, but it's always good to get a different perspective. And, you know, to be honest with you, somebody that really has, you know, eyes on the Astros farm system and the prospects. I really enjoyed his analysis on some of the guys that, uh, you know, maybe we should be getting excited about this spring and uh, in the future as well. Man, baseball fans are such whiny babies. I'm just <laughs> I'm just like, hey, couldn't believe it. We are what we it. are. And you're one of us, too. You know, you've got your quirks about you when it comes to the game. Um change in baseball it's something that for years and for literally generations you haven't had to adapt to you haven't had to get used to anything it is what it is and that was a beautiful thing it was nice but um you know if it's the dh if it's i mean really that's been the only significant thing i don't know what it is besides you know now it's bigger bases and you can't shift and uh, there's a pitch clock and a hit clock and all this stuff. It's like, this has really been the most significant change in my game, the game that I'm absolutely in love with that I can't believe I've surprised myself. Maybe it's my age of being 40 now that I, I don't know. I have enough wisdom or just logic in me that it doesn't bother me. It's it's cool. You know, I can dig a, a baseball game, you know, in the middle of a summer that's ending after two hours and 30 minutes versus three and a half hours. Yeah, I just want to remind Astros fans, about 11 or 12 years ago, you guys were really whining that we had to go over to the American League, and I missed the Cardinals and playing playing the Pirates and the Cubs. And I'm like, are you missing beating up the Yankees uh, every year? Are you? you, I mean, mean, it's, it's fun to be in the American League and face the Yankees and the Red Sox. It's fun to, by the way, get rid of the stupid pitcher hitting. I mean, everybody was whining about that. And guess what? It's kind of fun to have Jordan Alvarez in the lineup oh. instead of, you know, having to watch Wandy Rodriguez, you know, hit the, you know, and he was good. He was one of the good yeah. ones, but like Wandy was hitting baseballs instead of 
Jordan Alvarez. What a difference that makes. That's a fun thing to revisit, to be honest with you, because I have to imagine I was not in the minority, you know, when that change was made. What was that, 2011, 2012, something like that? The intrigue about it was, hey, you know, you get to go to Boston, you get to go to New York, see Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park and, you know, some of these more historical ballparks and things like that. And just, you know, the allure of playing teams that, you know, you're, you wouldn't see, but maybe once every couple of three, four years, who knows, in interleague play. But it's been a beautiful thing. Not only have you gotten to play those teams, you've gotten to beat the teams, those the best teams, the Yankees, the Red Sox, those teams that were always there, and you've won a couple World Series. It's just, it's an interesting thing to revisit, really, because everything that people probably despised about that idea um, you love about it now, the DH included. I loved it all. I also love the fact that because I was from Houston, but I spent a long time in Missouri and I've got a lot of Cardinal fans, friends or Cardinal friends that, that are, or however you say that Cardinal fan friends. Yeah, that's right. But I had so many guys that I knew were Cardinals fans and I knew their rival was the Cubs. It wasn't the Astros. I mean, we, we pretended like it was because for a couple of years they were going up against each other all the time. And, and they were the two of the better mm -hmm. teams. But in the end, the Cardinals and Cubs rivalry goes back 130, 140 years or whatever. And it wasn't the yeah. Astros. And by the way, as a Houston fan, I'm like, hey, it's pretty cool to have the Rangers in the division because I can work up a lot more hatred for the Rangers and the Dallas people than I can for Pittsburgh or, <laughs> you know, whoever yeah. garbage team that was in the NL Central outside of the Cardinals. Yeah, well, the good old silver boots still didn't mean squat because, you know, the Rangers have stunk ever since the Astros, uh, you know, got into the AL West. And, but, when know, they, but when they got to the AL West, let's not forget that the I Rangers know, just came good. off a couple of World Series. Yeah, they were pretty good, uh, but nothing since. And I'm enjoying that. I like that. Uh, I, like, I like the, you know, the, the, the tension that's built up now uh, between the Astros and the Mariners. Um, I, I love being in the same division and getting a chance to see one of the most polarizing and enjoyable players to watch, um, you know, 18, 19, 20 times a season in Shohei Otani. And if he's healthy, Mike Trout as well to boot. There's just so much to love about the Astros' current um, situation. I, I tell you this all the time, man. You know, we're six years into this, and, you know, I could even go beyond you know, maybe seven, eight years when you really kind of started to see the fruits of their labors kind of come to fruition, you know, with the tearing it down and building it back up since 2015, when they did something against the Royals in the postseason, they weren't supposed to do. And that's, you know, nearly pushed them to the brink. But it's a beautiful thing. Just don't take it for granted. I know it's hard not to, but man, really, I just try to enjoy every moment of this era of Astros baseball. It's it's fantastic. And, you know, to be honest with you, we may never see anything like this again in our lifetime. So just trying to live it up, man. All right. We are going to talk a little Texans now and got a surprise because in the next 24 hours or so, going to have a really interesting interview with the guy that covers C.J. Stroud for Ohio State. Looking forward to that. Keep an eye out for that yeah. on your podcast feed or on your YouTube channel, on our YouTube channel, that is. But, Sean, boy, there are some, uh, some rumors, some draft rumors. Uh, any of them catch your ear? I'm oh, kind of numb to it since we're several thousand rumors away from the draft in a couple of months. <laughs> you know, I just I heard a couple today. Somebody reported that, hey, you know, the Texans, you know, are going to go after Jimmy Garoppolo now. And then specifically with the draft, somebody – 
can't remember who. I mean, there's so many of these guys from CBSSports.com. One of them in their mock drafts had the Texans actually trading up to the number one spot with the Bears and taking C.J. Stroud. <laughs> uh, also heard another rumor, uh, you know, via a report that uh, had the Texans possibly trading back to number seven with their number two pick. I think that's the Raiders. And uh, maybe doing the same thing with their 12th overall pick, maybe nabbing a quarterback at seven, taking a flyer on Anthony Richardson. I mean, all of these crazy things. The ask, which, you know, the two to the seven, the Texans getting, I think, what was four picks in in this report or whatever, uh, or this mock. And that was, you know, eyebrow raising, but there's just so much, dude. And I, I think I, I wanted to tell you this the other day. I, I don't think I actually did. I really want to go. What's happening is people are just throwing crap up against the wall and seeing if it sticks. I mean, we're at that point like we are every single NFL draft, but particularly when your team has a top three, maybe even a top five pick. They do this to themselves where you just you come up with any crazy idea. It doesn't matter what it is. Every possible scenario is going to make its way to a mock draft 7.0 at some point. And that's where we are right now. And I think we're only on you know, 2.0s right now with a lot of these things. It's just crazy. I don't want to listen to any so-called experts, talking heads, tell me what they think is going to happen, what should happen. 2-12, and 12, I will say this, in my opinion, means nothing. 2-12 and 12 for the Texans probably doesn't end up being 2-12. and 12. It's probably going to be 2-18 and 18 or 2-7. and seven. Who knows? Things are going to move around. That's all I know because, one, Casario likes to do it. He's willing to do it. And it's just the NFL. Teams do it. Isn't Casario just putting out these rumors himself to try to throw everybody off? Could be. I mean, who knows? That's the thing. That's why I hate talking about all of this stuff. Like with any with any real vindication, like I, I can't be passionate about anything other than the fact that this is all so silly and just hypothetical. I, I'm excited for the draft, but I mean, you we can only pour over all of this junk you know, so many times before you even get to the new league you're starting, which is coming up May 15th, I believe, when free agency kicks in. And, you know, like I said on our show last week, I'm really looking forward to that in that window between March 15th and April 27th ahead of the NFL draft because free agency happens. And then we're really able to have a more intelligent type of a conversation in terms of what our team's going to do for an NFL draft. Sean, I'm interested to see how many coaches get fired late in this season potentially before mm -hmm. the rockets fire their coach which we know is going to happen and then those coaches get fired and other coaches come in that are great potential coaches for the rockets like quinn snyder is or that rafael stone going to drop the ball on it that's my biggest concern with like you you're waiting forever and ever you were leaving silas in place because, you know, he gives you the best chance at the best odds of the first overall pick. But if you blow a coach and then you don't get the first overall pick or the second overall pick, which they're counting on, then where are you? I don't know. I, I, I would say, yeah, you're right. Steven Silas gave you the best chance to, you know, get that number one overall pick. But so did Rafael Stone. He's the architect of this, you know, and it was his it was his decision. Tillman trusts him or at least trusted him going into this year. I still think that's not a given, you know, at season's end, the way that you just phrased that, okay, what does Rafael Stone do? You know, who does he go out and navigate? I, I don't know that Tillman's going to allow him to do that. I mean, 
I think I would, I, well, I know I'd like to see the Rockets be in search of a general manager and an entirely new coaching staff. I don't know if Tillman's going to do that. I hope he does. He's so hard to get a grasp on. I mean, he's talking Rockets, you know, with Frank Billingsley drunk at Mardi Gras. <laughs> you know, like that's that's Tillman Fertitta. That's that's our owner of the Rockets. And well, Stone, maybe, Stone keeps saying he's got a plan. They all have a plan. They all have oh. a, they all have a plan. They all have to sell that to their owners. Like, you know what? Your plan, if it lands you Victor Wimbanyama, all right, cool. Like Rocket fans will go back like the sheep that they are. Like we are sport fans and we're going to love it. But you know what? Your plan for the most part has sucked. You know, it's taken too darn long and you know, you had an opportunity to go out and get some veterans this season to show these young guys how to play. I, I know that's maybe not part of the plan because you really wanted to stink it up and get Victor, you know, and have this terrible coaching staff and create all of this drama and and just inflama- inflammation within the organization. Like, I, I guess I get it. I, I get it. I just I don't appreciate the way that they've gone about it over the course of the last three years. It's just been a long road, Robert. It's going to be really sad when they do not get the first or second pick because let me tell you, what's going to happen, very simple, is they're going to be a bad lottery team with no draft choice. By the way, this next draft's kind of sucky anyway, so maybe that's we're going to make too big a deal deal about that. But they're going to be a bad lottery team if they do not get these one or two guys because who will want to come to this car? I mean, they think James Harden's going to want to come here after he's just gone to the conference finals, maybe with no. in Philadelphia, if he's going to go, want to go from Joel Embiid to the Rockets, who are drafting four and five, you know, in the draft, and and they've got really not a whole lot to show right now because you got such terrible coaching that's done terrible development. You got nothing to show for your last two drafts. Yeah, yeah, and look, I I know there's. There's rumblings until there's not, you know, and and that's why I just can't wait to get this season over with and to have finality with this coaching staff and really hopefully with this front office, like whatever the decision is. If Tillman trusts in Rafael Stone's plan, then, you know, so be it. But we better start to see some progress this upcoming offseason in regular season with, with a new staff. But I need to see you know, some movement forward. I need to see this plan in action because it's it's easy to tear stuff down sometimes. We're going to see what the plan is basically in the next few months. And that should be really interesting to see what happens if they do not yeah. get those top two lottery picks because it all crumbles at that point. But Sean, it's February the 27th as you and I are talking. That means we're two days away from March and the Cougars and yeah. March Madness. How you feel? Yeah. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I mean, obviously I'm biased. I went to school there. You know, I cover them on the regular uh, for for Sports Radio 610. And, you know, I, 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 it's hard not to just be biased to some degree because you're around these guys, you know, with, with some regularity. But I've been paying really close attention over the course of the last month and just listening to what – guys are saying, you know, like Jamal Shedd and Jairus Walker and just kind of getting the vibe, the feel of the team and, you know, what the message has been uh, from this coaching staff. And, like, you could kind of dumb it down and say, hey, you know, a lot of this, at the end of the day, it is just coach talk. But I think the best quote in this city for my money is Kelvin Sampson. And I say that because there is substance there. Sure, the guy goes on these tangents and rambles and on and on and on and you can ask a direct question and he'll tell you anything, but, but it's just how his mind works, man. And, and I'm just, I'm listening to him and he's talking about, look, 
there's not one great team in this league right now. There's not one great team in the country right now. We're really good, but we're not great. Could we get there? Sure. But we'll have to see. We need to be a better defensive team. We need to be a better rebounding team. We need to be more efficient offensively. All of these things that you hear every coach for every team in every league at every level say, I've seen marked improvement over the course of the last month from this squad in every single facet of their game. And just over the course of really the last two seasons, this is right around the time where you start to see this squad come together. Sometimes they're healthy, Robert, and sometimes they're not. And you know what? This year, knock on wood, I mean, it looks like it's all kind of coming together. And they really look like a force to be reckoned with. And I know people nationally, while they've been giving them their props, they're going to say on the other side of their mouth, well, you know what? There's not there's not the Blue Bloods. There's no Duke. There's no Kentucky. There's no, you know, this, that, or the other team, whatever. It's like, you know what? That's fine. But, you know, Villanova, there's pretty good. Kansas, pretty good. You know, Purdue's pretty good. Like, Alabama, they're pretty good. Maybe not with Brandon Miller. And who knows how that thing shakes out. But, I mean, there's some really good teams in the country. And you know what? The Cougars have been number one three different times this season. And you're going to have to knock them out. So I really like the vibe. I like what they're saying. And most importantly, I like what I'm seeing with them. I'm very excited for the conference tournament um, and really excited for the Memphis game, the final game of the season coming up March 5th, because Memphis wasn't at their full arsenal, you know, a, a week and a half ago when they played the Cougs and they beat them, you know, by eight points. I think it was a wire to wire win. They should be fully healthy March 5th. And so I think it's going to be a really good test going into the conference tournament for the Cougars. And so it kind of really starts there for me. The other juggernaut in Houston right now, baby, is those Roughnecks, still undefeated. Wade Phillips, uh, yeah. his defense, three turnovers, five sacks, 11 total sacks in their first two games. Yeah, sacks. We don't see those all that often over at uh, NRG Stadium. 23 to 14 over the Arlington Renegades. Sean loved it. Loved it. Yeah. I, you know what I loved even more is like, I, I don't know. I think it was Phillips that took the video or maybe it was just like a team videographer or whatever, but the celebrations in the locker room afterwards, everybody dancing and having a good time, you know, playing the music. It was like club Astros in there. I mean, it, it's a good vibe. It's a good product. There's no question that people like it. It's just, you know, hopefully the rock and his ownership group, they can figure some stuff out and keep this around and help it survive and generate some revenue where it lasts for more than a year or two. Because I, I think this is a very cool thing. You get to see so much in the XFL that is lacking in a lot of things in the NFL. And you know what? There's some pretty cool ideas that the XFL does in terms of like different options than an onside kick, you know, going forward on a fourth and 15 and, you know, some gimmicky things like that, that maybe the NFL considers one day. So, but I'm happy for Wade because the dude, he just, this is his drive. It's like, it's almost like he just loves this so much. Like he's kind of like everybody's dream. He's living everybody's dream. He's literally doing something that he absolutely loves and is still really good at the age of, 71 or however old he is doesn't even matter because he's looked the same for 20 years in my opinion it's just really cool to see him doing this and being successful yeah and in a way i think wade is trying to say look we've made age a big deal in the nfl everybody's hiring younger and younger coaches but man i can still do this i'm still relevant marv levy was going to super bowl after super bowl with the bills when he was in his 70s I, I this can is still appeal to the young player yeah 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 oh yeah and wade definitely appeals to him just like his daddy did and it's it's so fun and you talk about 
these rules. And you got to remember that a lot of the rules that we see in the NBA, including the three-point shot, are thanks to the ABA. These other renegade leagues, oftentimes what they do is they end up, you know, grabbing rules from Mm -hmm. those uh, renegade leagues and incorporating them into the big leagues, the NFL, the NBA, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. Have you seen one thing in the XFL that you absolutely need to see in the NFL? How about something just, this is not even a new rule. This is just real simple. Why can they do instant replay in about a minute or two minutes in the NFL? It seems like I can go to the bathroom and go make something to eat before they can figure out what happened on a on an easy play that we all saw within like 30 seconds what happened. That's a fair question. Um, and I'll, I'll answer, I won't answer, but I'll ask you another question. Like in the NFL, it goes to a headquarters. Which I'm assuming it's in New York, right? So maybe that takes a little extra time and you've, they're going to be really thorough because it's the NFL, but maybe the XFL one, does it go to any headquarters? Are they, are the referees doing it themselves? They're just taking an extra look at it on the side and maybe they're just kind they're not pouring over 25 times in a row, looking at it in super extra slow-mo. Maybe it's just like they're looking at it real quick and boom, making a call. And why can the XFL, they can put the mics on the guys so we can hear what's going on. So if you're going to take some time, let's hear what they have to say. Everything with the NFL it's the secret, undercover, FBI-type thing. We can't show you anything in the NFL. We can't talk to people on the side. We can't hear from people on the sideline. We can't use mic audio during games of what yeah. the players are saying to each other, what the coaches are saying to each other, because God forbid we're, they're giving away the top, top, top secret. Even the NBA has included the, you know, they, they include the mic stuff. and it's, they, they edit it. They take out the stuff that maybe could give something away, but at least you hear some of the sounds of the game. But yeah, the other thing I would say for sure, rule changes is there's nothing more boring in the NFL than the stupid extra point. This one, two, and three points after you score a touchdown, this is an easy fix. And this is the NFL. I think it's just being stubborn that they haven't changed from this. Nobody wants to see an extra point. Yeah. I mean, even despite making it harder, more difficult, you know, taking it from what the chip shot that it used to be was at 20 yards and they moved it back to 32 or whatever it is. I don't even remember what it originally was. It was just really easy. I mean, like guys miss it every now and again, but it's not a thing. And at least unless you're a Dallas Cowboys kicker, but I, I think it's kind of like the same thing, you know, with baseball fans for football fans, there are some things that are just uneasy that they don't want to stray away from within the game because it has been that way for so long. And being a baseball guy, I'm going to not be a hypocrite here and say, you know what? I understand that because I do. If, if you can make the game better, if you can make the game more exciting, um, more dramatic, add action to it, all of the things that at the end of the day, Major League Baseball says that it wants, but has seemingly not really gone out and done outside of juicing baseballs and turning a blind eye to steroid use within its game. They haven't done that. The NFL could do that. Um, with the actual game itself. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. Like I was saying, you know, instead of an onside kick, you know, and you, you could eliminate, you know, there being just like a 1% or a 5% chance that, you know, that team recovers. 
Let's go with a fourth and 15. Institute something like that. I think that would be a little more interesting, intriguing, exciting for the NFL to do. So it's something like that. Maybe different rules with the kickoff, which I know has been a concern because of health and safety in recent years. But I think there are things, but it's it's important ultimately for these leagues, you know, USFL, XFL, whatever it is, the spring league, you know, to stick around and survive for more than one or two or three years, there has to be a really large sample size where the NFL could use instead of employing its own product as kind of like, a, uh, uh, you know, a test. Well, they've got the XFL, they've got a USFL league, you know, to where they can just they can institute it there, look at it, study it and then decide whether or not they want to employ it. I'll still enjoy watching what the XFL is doing, because I think they, they, they've got some good stuff and. Hey, we got a team that's fun to root for, and, and that's great. Uh, Sean, let's yep. do it again on Thursday, man. See you in a little bit. Yes, sir. Enjoyed it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Attack!